Obviously, in summer, we said as well, we're going to do a new sort of teaching season. And we decided to look again at heroes in the faith. So I, we, we all pitched in for ones that we wanted. And uh, normally, I'm a little bit kind of rebellious. And I like to pick some kind of obscure character or two. But I decided this time to go for someone a little bit more well-known, which was King David. I thought, well, let's look at David. And then, of course... When you start to get your head into it, you think, how on earth am I going to condense the whole of King David and loads of lessons from King David's life into like 30 minutes? And then my wife, Karen, comes over to me just before the meeting event. What are you going to do? Can you keep it short today? And I can't even, I don't even know why she said that. I thought, is she bored with listening to me? And then I found that she's not even here. So it must be something to do with, um, uh, I don't know, a picnic or something. So there we are. Um, David, so you're going to need a Bible. Uh, there are a bunch down there. If you need one, if you want one, don't hesitate to go and grab one. We are going to dip into it a little bit, obviously. And uh, also, if you want to get a cup of tea, we are quite laid back here. You can go and grab a cup of tea anytime you want, just for those of you that are unfamiliar with the drill here. Okay, so David, let me give you a snapshot. I think it'd be good to give you a little bit of snap, as uh, kind of a snapshot bio to start with, he's the second king of the United Kingdom of Israel after Saul. Here's some bullet points. The youngest of the eight sons of Jesse, he had eight wives that we know about. Um, he had, because it was probably a load more. Uh, he was a shepherd, a musician, a warrior, a politician. He was a king by the age of 30. We know of at least... 19 sons and one daughter. He is a busy chap. Uh, uh, on top of the wives, um, we, we know that he had many concubines and lovers. Uh, he was a passionate, red-blooded man. Should we leave it at that? And move on to some of the good stuff he did, which was he wrote half the Psalms, at least half the Psalms, uh, Passion is an interesting thing, isn't it? You, you, you often find that passionate people have, it's their greatest strength and their greatest weakness. And we know that David was almost like a, a wild worshipper as well. There's a story of how the ark, as they carried the ark back into the city, how he danced almost in an undignified manner. The rumours were that he danced naked before the Lord, according to the Bible. Passion has its strengths and its weaknesses. Um, uh, he was a descendant of Jesus, appearing in the genealogies. Uh, he could be brutal, utterly brutal. He was a violent warrior. He formed, some would argue, the very first special forces unit. If you read up on David's Mighty Men, which is a whole other sermon for another time, it's one of my most favourite passages in the Bible. But he formed a whole bunch of guys who could club whole armies to death with a hammer and a spear. Quite an amazing group of guys. He was at the same time ferociously loyal, even when he was being hunted to death by King Saul. He wouldn't raise a fist against him. He could be incredibly wise as a leader, but he was also a murderer. A cold-blooded murderer just to pursue his own ambitions. And he was an adulterer. 
at an extreme level, which we'll go into. But here's the weird thing. At the same time as all of the negative stuff surrounding his life, which most people remember him for, he was also called, both in the Old Testament and validated in the New Testament after he stuffed up, which we're going to look at in detail, he was called a man after God's heart, which is absolutely fascinating. Because for most of us, if we stuff up in a very visible way, which David arguably did, as you'll discover in a moment, we would not then describe them as a man after God's heart. But David was, so it leads us with some questions that we need to unpack. He basically saw a woman, which we're going to read this account, decided he wanted her, made sure her husband was killed and took her to bed and is called a man after God's heart. That's an interesting pastoral perspective, isn't it? Um, at the same time, of course, there were consequences. And just while we're doing the bullet point stuff, every sin has an effect. There are human consequences to live with. So even though he was called a man after God's heart, after the incident, his first son by the woman he committed adultery with died. His other son killed another son for the rape of their sister Tamar. Another son committed treason and was struck down by David's nephew. And another son for trying to supplant Solomon, another one of his sons, was also put to death. After the adultery, there was infighting, plagues, turmoil, heartache that followed his life. It fell apart, basically. In other words, sin has its consequences, but he was still known as a man after God's heart. Let me read you the account. This is not the main thrust, but you need to understand where the, uh, where the tipping point was. This is from 2 Samuel 11, and uh, it starts with a very poetic line. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, Oh, that's kind of cool, isn't it? Like, it's spring. What should we do? Let's have a war, because that's what we do in the spring. Who knew? David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing and a woman was very beautiful. And David sent some men, someone to find out about her. And the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent some messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. This is the downfall of a passionate man. Some men would have taken a stroll on the balcony and seen a beautiful woman bathing and think, I need to get off this balcony quick and, and don't take this any further. Some men have got the discipline not to even go on the balcony in the first place because I suspect she may have done that before and he may, this may not be the first time that he had a little wander on the balcony. I'm just a supposition, but I think that may be a thing. 
because I know how blokes tick. And then some men would have taken some steps and then canned it. But by now, the temperature's down, but David still pursues it. And not only that, it happens here. She went home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to the house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and the gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and didn't go down. And David was told Uriah didn't go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah is staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. This is a loyal man. Bathsheba's wife is a loyal man. David hears this. He hears the loyalty. But he's cold, man. He's a cold guy. He's, he's brutal when he wants to be. It says this, David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next at David's invitation. He ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening Uriah went out to sleep on his mat amongst his master's servants and he didn't go home. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Let him withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. What a scumbag. That's what you think, isn't it? Don't you think that? You read that and you think, what a scumbag. What a horrible, despicable thing would he do? And so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when, when the men of the city came out and fought against him, Joab and some of the men in David's army fell. And moreover, Uriah, the Hittite, died. Wow. That's pretty cold. But then the rescue bit happens. How are you feeling about David at the moment? Do you like hate him? Or are you all trying to be really good and Christian and love him anyway? Is what you're doing? You're sort of looking at me blankly like, Carl, you're calling him a scumbag, but he's one of God's beautiful kids. No, he's been horrible. Second uh, Samuel 12 then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to me, he said, there were two men, Nathan's a prophet. I love prophetic encounters like this, unless they happen to me, in which case I really don't. There were two men in a certain town, one rich, one poor. The man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had brought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. I'm welling up here. He shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but a rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Do you know once, we used to keep chickens when I was a kid. And uh, one time we had a roast dinner. And my dad said, do you like that roast chicken? I went, I do, it's really good. And he went, that was your chicken, chicken ticker. I used to call it chicken ticker. I ate him. That's how I felt reading this, and you're all laughing. Terrible. <laughs> David 
burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. He must die because of that lamb. Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, all of Israel and Judah. And so it goes on and describes what he did to Uriah the Hittite. Verse 11, this is what the Lord says, Out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I'll take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he'll sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you've shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David and he became ill. And David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. And the elders of his household stood before him to get him up from the ground, but he refused. And he would not eat any food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. And David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him that the child is dead? He may do something desperate. And David noticed that the attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground, and after he had washed put on lotions, changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Sin has its consequences. So why is he a man after God's heart when you read all of that? Well, there's a few reasons. And we're going to blast through them. The first one is that despite the fact that he was an utter nightmare at times and his greatest strength could also be his greatest weakness. He always worshipped the Lord and he always did what God wanted. In Acts 13.22 it quotes the verses from Samuel and it says, I found David son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do Everything I want him to do. God always looks at the heart. And we have massively misinterpreted, I think, what holiness is. Holiness, to most people, is I will not steal the pick and mix. I will pay my taxes. I won't get absolutely hammered every night of the week. I'm not going to tell a lie. That, that's actually not holiness. That's the outworking of holiness. You know what holiness is? Holiness is saying, my heart is after God's and I will do whatever he asks me to do and I will go wherever he asks me to go no matter what. Now, it may be along the way after you've prayed that prayer and said that thing that you mess up. And some people mess up more than others. 
Some people have much higher sex drives than other people. Some people have more addictive personalities than other people. Some people could be more cold-hearted than other people. Why? Because we live in a fragile, broken, sin-filled world. We are not the finished article. Some people have bigger red self-destruct buttons than other people. We'll come on to that in a bit. Some people are naturally holy. I've worked with people who never seem to have bad thoughts. Ever. I once, seriously, I was once chatting to a bloke, obviously doing men's ministry for many years and still involved in it. You're always talking to guys who are messing up. And I was sitting in a prayer group with one guy and he said to me, do you know what he said? I, I don't think I've had a sexual temptation since 1987. <laughs> and he actually knew when it was. I think, how did that, how'd you even do that? That is just, are you the angel Gabriel? I mean, how, how does that even a thing? For some people, that's just a thing. Some people are naturally holy. But was he doing what God wanted him to do? And would he say, I'll go if you tell me to go. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. In that particular example, no, he wasn't. I actually think all holiness starts from that point. I can remember, I mean, I often describe myself, to be honest with you, and those who get close to me will know this, I'm a bit of a hooligan Christian. You know, I love my saviour. I love my God. But my daughters will tell you I'm not the perfect article. I try to be consistent wherever I am. The guy you see at the front now is pretty much what you see at home. But I can get frustrated, angry, fed up. The things that press my red button, my self-destruct button. But I tell you what I do have. I know I'm not the most gifted. And I know I'm not the most verbally competent. I don't, I don't read my Bible as much as some people. I don't, I don't pray like some of the prayer warriors I know. But I'm passionate. Now I'll follow my God anywhere. I will. Because I said it too much. I'll go wherever you tell me to go and I'll do whatever you ask me to do. No matter what. And when I prayed it, I meant it. I always like working with people where their word is their bond. You know, like they've said it, they'll do it. And do you know what? I think that pleases the Lord. I do. And I, I'm, I'm saying this to someone, I'm well aware of my imperfections, but I'm passionate about my God. And a lot of people, I talk to a lot of people going into ministry type stuff now. And do you know the things they often ask me at interviews? They'll, they'll say things like, what's the pay? What's the pension? What's the holiday entitlement? What's the benefit packages? And I start thinking, just do one. You want to serve the Lord? Serve the Lord. We'll take care of this. Don't, don't let that be your first question. You're passionate about your God. You're passionate about rescue and telling people about Jesus. And I think God looks at that and he'll deal with the rest of it. And it might, that's not just the same for like people doing what I do, working in a ministry. It's the same whether you're in a bank, you're a doctor, you're a gym owner, you're whatever it is about my God and I'll do whatever he asks me to do and I'll go wherever he tells me to go at risk of embarrassing it's a bit like Neville Neville's he's got, well, I've got a good job sorted out nice house God gripped him about the poor and people in debt so he's thinking how can I reorganise my life so I can do that that is how we interpret being a man after God's heart I'll do whatever you ask me to do. I'll go wherever you ask me to. I'll go wherever you ask me to go, no matter what. 
It's not about whether you stole the pick and mix or not. Because whether you steal the pick and mix or not actually flows from the other thing. You don't do the weird stuff because your heart's after God. Do you see what I mean? Uh, there's things I don't do because I don't want to lose the opportunity to serve him or make an impact. I don't want to numb and blunt the anointing of God on my life because I'm also where it's all of him. Do you see what I mean? I think David had that. God saw it. He'll do whatever I ask him to do. He's the man. And I, like the misinterpretation of holiness, actually, Jesus called out in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites! Give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the Lord, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. It's a whole bunch of people trying to be holy, but they're not pleasing the Lord. You can have all the appearances of holiness and not please the Lord. Isn't that amazing? You can worship, you can give, you can get a home group, you can help with the kids' work. You can, you can, you can be on a T-rotor, the connect rotor. You can wear the T-shirt. You can do it all and not be pleasing the Lord. How freaky is that? And yet a bloke like David, who is a cold-blooded, adultering, assassin nightmare, is called a man after God's heart. Why? Because actually, he did put things right. Because secondly, he had radical faith. Absolutely radical faith. So if you've got your Bibles with you, you want to pop back to 1 Samuel 17. Uh, and let me read this account. This is the classic account. How can you not talk about David and not talk about Goliath? Let me read this. The Philistines camped at the, uh, camped there, gathered their forces for and assembled at Soka in Judah. They pitched their camp. Let's go on a little bit. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. And a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet in his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point waved, weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him and Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. And if he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's word, Saul and all the Israelites' army were terrified and dismayed. Well, you kind of would be. Now, David was a son uh, of Jesse, who is from Bethlehem. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. And Jesse's three eldest sons have followed Saul to war. And obviously, uh, David being the youngest to move on quickly was not going to be the choice warrior. David was a little runt of a man and uh, not really your first choice to go against a warrior. 1 Samuel 17, 34. We'll skip on. David said to Saul, uh, because he wanted to fight him, and Saul said, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're a young man and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep 
when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its head, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul went, go on then. Because <laughs> I don't think he wanted to know about it. And then Saul dressed David in his own armour. But you never wear uh, someone else's armour. Especially when it doesn't fit. So he just went out on his own with his sandals and his sling and a staff and a few stones. And then this bit here is absolutely brilliant. Because he gets mocked by Goliath. He looked David over, it says at verse 42, and saw his little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Now how cool is this? This is man stuff. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you. In the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. He's always the kind of guy that's going to go the extra distance, you think, with David. He don't just say, come on and let's have it. I'm going to strike you down and cut your head off. And this day, I'll give you a car. He don't stop. This very day I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel and all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, that the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. I'm going to try and put this in context. Um, where's Joel? Musician Joel. Mate, come down here a sec before I was with you. Just quickly, I'm going to try and put this in context, uh, just as a visual illustration. Um, this is Joel, uh, wonderful musician. Uh, this is my mate Phil, who is England's strongest man, actually, at the moment. England's strongest man, everybody. So, now, yeah, no, so, um, and well on his way to probably being world's strongest man in the next two years. There we go. Now, if, just, yeah, we once had an arm wrestling competition at the gathering and everyone thought they were coming up to fight me and then I got off the stage and Phil got up. It was absolutely priceless. Um, to put it in context, can you imagine Joel in Corporation Street bumping into Phil when everyone's out clubbing and then saying, I will strike you down and cut off your head. You're just going to go to him and just go like that, aren't you? Be quiet and flick his head off. Yeah, thank you very much. Just to put a visual demonstration. That is radical faith. Do you know how to put the whole shackles thing? Because you're thinking, what's the shackle? What's the shackle? Is there always shackles, aren't you? When I read that, but you were not thinking that in that accent? I was. <laughs> He's actually nine foot nine. Nine foot nine. And his armour and spear and everything else that he was carrying weighed three quarters of the weight of a grand piano. That's a lot of armour. That's a big spear. 
But my God, my God is on my side. He had absolutely radical, radical, gutsy faith. It seems to me that God likes it. It's like Caleb, isn't it? Caleb looks at the promised land in Exodus. And everyone else says, no, hold on. The Nephilim are there, the giants of old. The Nephilim are there and the sons of Anak are there. We're going to get stuffed. If we cross the land, we're going to get absolutely stuffed. And Caleb says, come on. God's on our side. What are you talking about? With God on our side, we can do anything. And God saw it and said, in my language, Caleb's all right. I like Caleb. He's got a different spirit. And she says it in Numbers 14, because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. I wonder what that means for you and I wonder what that means for us as a church. Perhaps we should all be in faith for something that puts us on the edge and makes us completely dependent on God. And if that scares you, absolutely should. Maybe as Christians, we should all be living that way. What are you in faith for? That actually makes you fully dependent and reliant on God. It's a challenge to myself as well. Because you can always bring yourself to a point of comfort. And, and not just things that are selfish to us. Like around our own lifestyles and choices. Things that actually benefit the kingdom. Because what I find is a lot of the times I want to be in faith for things that are quite selfish. Do you know what I mean? Like my kids and their exam results or my family and stuff around my family or personal finances. But actually I'm talking about stuff that's not personal to us because David's faith is not about self-gain or preservation. It's faith for others. It's faith for his nation. And I remember actually, I know that God loves this because I remember when we first had the gathering, the gathering came, you know, gets a good couple of thousand guys down, loads of guys coming to Christ and... When we first set up, we didn't have a clue. We didn't have enough money. We didn't even have the fields. We didn't order enough toilets. We didn't have enough showers. We had the world's grumpiest barman from Swindon that no one liked. You know, the, it, was, it was a shocking event. 250 paying guys turned up, wasn't enough to cover the bills. But you know what? It actually had been an audacious plan. We were saying, let's create a national conference that's going to win. It's like a rescue mission to blokes. We're going to win thousands of guys to Christ. And we believe that God spoke to us for a whole series of things. And because we believe that God spoke, we went for it. And do you know what? God blessed it. We didn't know how we were going to pay the bills. We didn't know how we were going to pay the staff. And do you know what? Every time I know God's spoken and we've stepped out in faith, somehow we always come through. Why? Because I think it pleases the Lord. I really do. A couple more brief points very quickly. Third thing, the reason is after God's heart is because he loved God's word. He loved the law. Psalm 119, I delight in your commands because I love them. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. He was a worshipper and he was a student of the law, not because he had to, but because he loved it. That's the overflow of all the Psalms came out of that. And the question is to us, you know, the Bible is a precious thing. Do we meditate on it? Do we love it? And it's just a question. I think those that love the word of God thrive. Uh, I really believe that. Find a way it works for you. Find a way translation. Get it on Audible. David Suchet, fantastic. Whatever works for you, get it. Love the law.
as David did. Fourthly, he was repentant. He stuffed up big time, bigger than most of us ever will, and this perhaps is absolutely crucial. But do you notice that, that when Nathan called him out on his sin, first thing he did was go and worship. He pleaded before God, and he was worship. He wasn't chipped up about it, didn't get angry at God. He took it, and he worshipped. And Psalm 51 was written in response to his adultery. Have mercy on me, O God, according to steadfast love, according to abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I wonder how many of us pray like that on a regular basis. God, just clean me up. Clean my heart up. I know I'm a flawed man or woman. I know it. So often I've found in life that I think everyone else is wrong and I'm right. I've got these massive blind spots called ego and my own humanity. But I think what David had was an utter dependence on God, actually. I think that's why he worshipped in front of him with all his might. I think that's why he poured his heart out in the Psalms. Even after all the heartache and turmoil, even after all his family rebelled and his sons were killed and killed each other and all kinds of terrible stuff. Do you know what his dying words were? 1 Kings 2.2, it says, As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways. Keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. Imagine that being your dying words. I've often wondered, you know, if I have the opportunity to be aware that my life is slipping away, what my dying words will be. At the moment, it's probably likely to be something like, can you pass us another Twix? <laughs> or like, get me some water, I'm really thirsty. <laughs> something like, really annoying, or turn the light off, or turn that stupid daytime telly off. <laughs> be something like that, probably, when I'm not in my best. But he was at his best all the time, in this sense, because he loved the Lord. What a beautiful thing that would be to say to, if you have this precious, precious opportunity one day, and it, I'll promise we'll try and make it a precious opportunity, if I'm dying, and my daughter's around my bedside, what a beautiful and precious thing it would be to be able to say to Emily and Annie, win more for Jesus, follow the commands of the law, love God with all your heart you'll be successful if you do that just just love the Lord Emily love the Lord Annie what a precious thing it would be to say that what a precious precious thing it is that you're wired to be thinking to say that how amazing is that comes to the end of his life all of these ups and downs his heart was for God he was absolutely amazing, David. Red-blooded, lust-filled, murderous, mighty warrior. Passionate about his God. Absolutely passionate about his Saviour. Even in the failure, his heart was for God. He gave glory to God. He pursued God. He never got chipped up with God. And when his lust or ambition got the better of him, he put it right as best he could. And he did it quickly. Remember, though, that they lived in gritty times when death was ever present and 
people had multiple wives and stuff. So please don't listen to this and think, there's my excuse to go out and uh, have a couple of balcony moments. No. No, 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 no. That is, I'm not, do not get that from this. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is God looks to the heart. He looks to your heart. You can put on all the pretense of loving your God and loving your Saviour. But God knows. Looks at our hearts. And I think he looked at David and said, yeah, he's going to stuff up. He's one red-blooded military lustfield leader, but he loves me. Absolutely loves me, does David. And if I tell him to go, he'll go. If I tell him to do something, he's going to do it. Wouldn't it be amazing if that's what you could do? Whatever you say to me, God, look to your heart and whatever you say to me, I'll do it and I'll trust you for the rest. That's the faith that will put you in front of a Goliath. That's the faith that when you stuff up, God knows that he can restore you, and take you through dark times. That's the faith when even when you feel like your family's falling apart, he'll take you through. And that's the faith that even in your dying breath, you'll be going, go on, girl. Go on, son. Follow God. Follow God and then you'll be successful. And how did David know to say that? Because he knew that in the seasons of his life, when he put God first, things went pretty peachy. And when he didn't, it all went a little bit pear-shaped. It's funny, isn't it, how we know that and we still make wrong choices. And that's the human condition. So let's pray that our hearts are right with God.